Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to this week's Luck on Sunday podcast, the best of this week's show, which featured, as always, a mixture of insightful and entertaining guests. First of all, I was joined by David Redvers. Redvers, who was in Clover after a wonderful British Champions Day, Kipco British Champions Day, for both him and his boss, Sheikh Farhad Alfani, one of the masterminds behind Champions Day, and also, of course, as the proprietor of Qatar Racing, the owner of Roaring Lion, securing his fourth Group 1 of the season. Redvers shared his thoughts on the development of British Champions Day and also as to whether Roaring Lion would be headed to Kentucky for the Breeders' Cup, and if so, in which race. Later on in this podcast, you'll be able to hear the thoughts of CEO of the BHA, Nick Rust, after what's been a busy and eventful week for racing's governing and regulatory body not only addressing some of the issues brought about by Andrea Atzani's unfortunate withdrawal from British Champions Day, but also talking more expansively and more importantly about racing's collective need to get together to address the issues that were brought about by the welfare debate in Parliament triggered by a petition of over 100,000 signatures earlier on in the week. The last guest on the programme was John Dance. John Dance, the owner of Lawrence, an extremely successful hedge fund manager in Newcastle. He's developed an ownership portfolio stretching to north of 30 horses. Lawrence herself, for all she didn't cover herself in glory on British Champions Day, has had an amazing season, rattling up five Group 1 wins for trainer Carl Burke. Dance talks extremely informatively about his ownership interests and what really spurs him on to be a major force within the sport. My guests this week, in addition to David Redvers and John Dance, were Jane Mangan. Jane herself, a very successful amateur rider, both over jumps and on the flat, now turning her attentions as a pedigree expert for Coolmore and also combining that with journalistic and broadcasting work. She was a fine guest and a great first appearance from her. And David Yates, a regular on Luck on Sunday, newsboy for the Daily Mirror. So much to look forward to during the course of this week's podcast. It's great to have you on board. Sit back, relax for the next hour and enjoy the very best of this week's Luck on Sunday. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. David, good morning. I was worried about whether you'd make it here for, for nine o'clock, but you, here you are, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and, and what an extraordinary day it was for your team and, and Roaring Lion yesterday. Yeah, it was uh, undoubtedly a sort of uh, career highlight, really. Um, we've been very lucky this year. We've had quite a few of them, but uh, yesterday was really, truly special, not least because of the involvement of my um, clients, friends in, um, in Qatar, uh, with Kipco's sponsorship, but also Sheikh Fad's very personal involvement and his brothers. So to be able to celebrate, well, witness a, a, a truly great racehorse in their colours um, in that sort of setting was was really very special. Let, let's talk a little bit about the horse first, and then we'll talk about Champions Day in a moment. At the beginning of the season, what what aspirations did you have for for Roaring Lion? Where realistically did you think he could land up? I think I mean, when. We, f we felt sort of slightly hard done by, I think, after the Racing Post trophy because he looked to a lot of people like that was his race and, and he should have won it. I think Oshin beat himself up for quite a long time afterwards over it unfairly. Um, the horse was green and, and wasn't quite there. He wasn't the finished article mentally and it took him a few runs this year under the expert tutelage of Mr Gosden to get him really on the, on the, on the money. Um, so we, we knew going into the winter that we had what we thought was the best two-year-old, and he was champion British two-year-old. Obviously, Saxon Warrior um, took the overall crown. Um, and there was always that sense of, you know, whatever he did this year was just yeah. a, a prelude to something much better. And we knew he was in the best hands, and we knew that he could only improve from two to three physically and mentally. So 
Yeah, we came into the into the year um, shocking winter, as you remember, and, and uh, had aspirations and hopes that we would have a horse doing exactly what he's done. Um, you know, there was always the questions, as there all, as there always are, with a with a thoroughbred going into the into its classic year, of is he going to stay? What's his ideal trip going to be? The pedigree experts say one thing, the trainer says maybe another, the jockey says another, the owner always says plenty and has a lot uh, a lot to think about. Um, and um, yeah, it's just been a, it's been a fantastic journey, but we knew we had something special and all through the spring Mr. Gosden said we had something special. Um, so the Craven was a, you know, an interesting day. But, uh, so, so how disappointed were you, more, more to the point? How much encouragement could John Gosden give you, given the fact that he'd run so disappointingly in the Craven? Well, he said at the time, he said, we'll be laughing about this later. How the hell did we get him be here? But, I mean, we had had the most appalling spring. Uh, he hadn't been on the grass. Uh, Massar had come over, um, you know, having had a, a very enjoyable spring in, uh, in the heat of mm. Dubai and looked at, you know, he looked at different different horse to us um, that day. Um, but I mean, the great thing is that he just, from that day, he's improved and improved and improved and improved. So, but people have talked about many brilliant training performances from John Gosden this season, from Stradivarius to Cracksman to Too Darn Hot to Roaring Lion um, to Lati Dar. Uh, in, in your in your view, how how impressive is it when a trainer can say to you after a horse has run badly, ranked badly? Don't worry about that; it's fine. Um, I think it it just tells you everything you need to know about the man himself. He he has um, more experience than almost anybody else um, in the game. He's handled better horses than nearly everybody else, other than Bally Doyle and you know, Michael Stout, and there's a, there's a few of them. But I mean, he's he's uh, his experience just tells legions. And he's you know, Sheikh Fahad is a um, a massive enthusiast. Thank God, you know. Look how lucky we are as an industry to have him with a sponsorship, and look how lucky I am to have him as a client. Um, but he's always asking questions. He's got the most uh, incisive mind, and uh, he's always looking for other alternatives, other routes. You know, he was right from early on. That was the case. But with John Gosden, he said, "Whatever Mr. Gosden says will just be fine." That that's interesting because in your period as as racing manager to Sheikh Fahad and in the relationship you've built up, it strikes me that you've you've experimented with quite a lot of different things. Is that by design? Have you changed tack and changed course according to what you feel at the time might be right, just to see whether you think different things, different trainers, different methodologies work? It's it's been a it's been a journey. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I hadn't I. I, I suppose had a little bit of a name for for finding good horses cheaply, but I didn't. I'd never dealt with uh, a client on that scale before, um, and a young client. I mean, you, when I, when I first met him, he was twenty, and um, you know, huge enthusiasm and passion, but no experience at all. And I had a certain amount of experience, but at a, at a not at that level. So we've made a, a journey together, and I've undoubtedly made some very expensive mistakes on his behalf, and we've. Um, but we've matured as an operation, and we're getting. I hope we're getting more right than wrong these days. And and um, you know, it's uh, yes. I'm sure if I did it all over again, I'd have advised against doing certain things and and um, pushed harder in other directions. But you know, it's got to the stage now where the pupils definitely taken over the the, um, the teaching role. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, massively uh, involved in every decision we make. Um, we don't always agree. In fact, sometimes we don't agree at all. But I mean, <laughs> um, he's—he'll uh, he's, be very quick to point out that he's right more often than I am. Um, but uh, you know, it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's a great fun journey, and I think we're—you know—we're pretty much getting it as right as we can in the circumstances at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, we've, and this year has been a, a crowning season for us. No doubt, next season we'll go all season with nothing to show for it. But. What do you think are the most significant lessons that you both have learned along the way about the sport in general, about the way it's run, about the people who run, about the people you're dealing with? Whew, it could take a while. Um, I think we've... Uh, well, the, 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 some of the old adages are the best. Keep yourself in the best company and your horse is in the worst. You know, that's one of the best. Um, the uh, I think there's... 
there's st still many lessons we can take and there's, there's much that, as a sport we can do as well. I think, and, and I've been very, very lucky with him in so much as he's allowed me to... I mean, the, within, within six months, we'd, you know, we'd, I'd managed to get involved in a big sponsorship deal, you know, something I would never have done before, um, because he has a passion to make the racing game better. Um, so I've learned an awful lot about how the, that side of the racing game works, um, and it's you know it's much bigger than just the horsemanship side of it. So um, it's, yeah, it's a it's a big question, that, and um, uh, the most valuable lesson I think we've learned probably is that get yourself a tight team of trainers, get yourself um, the very best horse you can find, and let them get on with it. Um, and um, you get some fairly reasonable rewards out of it. I think a lot of people quite ad admired you for being an out a bit of an outlier and being quite pioneering and, and sending horses to places that perhaps they wouldn't have thought of as the obvious ones and sort of trying to build relationships with younger trainers and to, to do things that were just a little bit left field. And I think, I think people genuinely admired that. But is it, is it a strategy that you now feel wasn't the right strategy necessarily? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I think that... Um when you've got somebody as good for racing as Sheikh Fad, you, you, you want to spread them around as much as you can. Um, and, you know, when I've, when I've seen talent, whether it be equine or human, I've always gone, right, I mean, let's, give, let's back this one, let's give them a chance. Um, whether it be a jockey, in Ashin's case, you know, we took him on very young. Um, it's the best decision we've ever made. Um, whether it be a, buying a horse with a small trainer and leaving it with him and, and, um, and letting him take the horse through its career um, you know there, there are undoubtedly things you wish you'd done slightly differently but for the most part I think um, we can be pretty proud about the way we've gone about it, we've helped people um, we've, we've uh, you know it's, it's never easy, there's always questions to be asked and we're always trying to improve but I don't regret anything we've done with regards to helping you know a small trainer and leaving the horse there, yeah. obviously the thing becomes finessed as you go along and we've now got to a stage where you know Sheikh Fad has got his group of trainers and there's a couple of very young ones amongst them I mean Archie Watson's one of the first um, you know he was one of the new young trainers on the, on the books and Amy Murphy's a trainer I've got a huge amount of time for um, and uh, you know I've helped her as well only in a very small way but I mean I'm delighted to see how somebody like that progresses anybody who works really mm -hmm. hard at it and has got the right horse would be keen to help and they're very good communicators as well both both Amy Murphy and Archie Watson which is very important that funnily enough is one of the things that I've re re really picked up on is we've, we've now got quite a large involvement in Australian racing and how um, because that's very much a, a syndicate based racing um, organisation organization, but country there's a far greater participation and so every trainer out there has to um, be very good at their communication or they just fall behind very quickly and the, the new young group of British and Irish mm. trainers have realised that now, if they've got any chance of success they've got, to be very, they've got to be absolutely on the money when it comes to communication and those two in particular are superb. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Uh, this is Roaring Lion winning. Uh, he had no cover, David. He had to sort of rather do it all on his own. It was a trip shy of his best on ground he didn't like. Do you think we saw a different dimension to this horse yesterday? It was a fantastic photograph in the Racing Post this morning of the horse. With his, I mean, if ever a horse grits his teeth, he does here. I mean, it was the most painful, painful race to watch because he clearly was hating... He wasn't enjoying it at all, um, and he, um, and yet he still he showed the guts and determination. He's, he's one of only two horses I've ever been involved with that I can think of that actually genuinely knows he's in a horse race and genuinely wants to win and knows what it's about. I, I, I think you can see that quite clearly in that race. Who was the other the, one? The other one was Dunedin, and he, used, you know, pen, pinned his ears back and fought hot tooth and nail and uh, was. Devastated if he, if he didn't win. This, this is just a, he's a, this is a machine. This is the best horse we've ever had anything to do with. And 
I hope you know, the, the rest of my professional career is going to be around about trying to find another one like him. Those celebrations in the Royal Box there, they're striking images. They'll go all around the world. Her Majesty the Queen there almost egging Sheikh Farhad on to, yeah, she to was. enjoy his moment. She just, was. Just give us a flavour of the, of the atmosphere in there. Um, I'd been grabbed by Lydia, so I, I was just, just uh, late to the party, but I came in very lucky to be asked into the, the Royal Box. Um, uh, by Johnny Weatherby to, to come and uh, witness it in the best possible place on, uh, on the planet, actually, at that point. And uh, it was wonderful. I mean, Her Majesty is so enthusiastic. And she turned around to Sheikh Fahd at some point and told him to scream, will you? Because he was basically about to combust. He was getting so excited. But he managed he'd to do a high five, thing. I think, with his brother there over Her Majesty's head. Oh, I know, I know. There was, but she, she is the ultimate racing enthusiast, and she absolutely loved it. So certainly, to my eye, anyway. And and do you know what? I I can't think of anywhere in the world I'd rather have been at that moment. And it was an absolute highlight. Do you think he'll run in the Breeders' Cup? And if he does, which race will he run in? I was afraid you might ask me this. Um, Sheikh Fahad is very keen to go to the Breeders' Cup. Um, he believes that uh, this horse is so much the best mile and a quarter horse in the world that, that he can overcome all of the difficulties that would go with running a horse on the dirt for the first time. Um, you know, and he may well be right, but I mean, he has been on the go since February. Um, I haven't spoken to anybody in Mr. Gosden's yard this morning or John himself to find out how he's come out of the race. He had a tough race yesterday because he was running in ground that he's not made to run in. And if if he can do what he's done all season and bounce back, he may well take his chance. But that but it would be, only be the classic. It wouldn't be any of the other races. He is in the turf as well, and it's it's you know there's been this great chat going on in the press that John Gosden's quite brilliant at keeping his horses apart, and that this was another example of it yesterday. It was absolutely not the case at all. I don't believe for a second that even enters his head. And if it turns out that the decision was to make to take, be, you know, to take on an able, well, we would be delighted to do so. But I think the main point about the, the, the Breeders' Cup debate is that you know, it's a shot to nothing, really. If the horse is in really good fettle, if he's bouncing like he's done all season, he'll go. Uh, he may well go. But that that will that decision will be made, and it'll be made at the, you know as late as possible by John Gosden and Sheikh Fahad. And I'm going to stay right out of it. Mm. Jane, if Roaring if Roaring Lion was yours, uh, would you go to the Breeders' Cup before retirement? And if you did go there, which race would you run him in? If I employed John Gosden, I'd get him to make the decision for me. That's a, te that's the, the, a terrible answer. And I answer. have so much respect for Enable. Um, I, I, the classic is, the only thing with the classic is it's run on dirt. Mm. I think he, she, like he could beat Thundering Snow and he could beat whatever's in America. But uh, I don't think he could beat Enable over a mile and a half. So as a stallion prospect, I probably wouldn't go there, but... But, but you're not going to. He danced every dance, and he had a very hard race yesterday. And we've seen repeatedly when horses run and get hard races on soft ground, until they run again and disappoint, you reflect in hindsight and say, "Oh, it actually took way more than we gave him credit for." Mm. Um, I think he ran five pounds below his best yesterday and still managed to win. Um, I'd love to see him line up, but I'd be going classic. You'd be going to the classic, David. You'd go for the classic. I mean, wh why would you even think about the other races? I mean, he's David just said he's a horse who grits his teeth and knows he's in a horse race. He, he's a he's a a thoroughly admirable colt who has left behind his immaturity, physical and mental, from the spring to become enable apart and Lawrence apart. I don't mean apart, but as well as yeah. in addition to the star of the 2018. Flat season, along with Asheen Murphy, who has blossomed this year and, and is a not only at 23 an already excellent jockey, but a, a superb communicator as well. Why would you go for the mile? Why would you go for the turf? I mean, who remembers Breeders' Cup turf winners? To, you told me before we came on that he's out of a street sense mare. He is. So uh, why not take a shot? If if he comes last in the classic, who cares? Didn't didn't Galileo run in the yeah finished classic? finished an okay sixth in the classic? Did that did that damage in any way what's happened over the last or, or influence negatively in any way what's happened over the last 
couple of decades? Absolutely not. I think. I mean, I think that's a, that's a very valid point, and that's certainly Shafad's angle is that it's a shot to nothing. The problem is, of course, that this horse has run all his races the other way around. He's he's he settles, he's relaxed, and he quickens. And um, the Breeders' Cup dirt is a completely different mm. thing. If you settle, you're going to get a face full of shit. I thought. <laughs> I thought yesterday um, he enhanced his claims to to win the classic in a sense because he had to do things that he hadn't had to do before. So as I say, he, he showed another dimension. Yeah, and he is the, the, the extraordinary thing about this horse is that I mean, how many other horses can you think of that have run in a Guineas trial, the Guineas, a Derby trial, the Derby, and then won their next four Group Ones? I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary <laughs> thing. He's just got better and better. And, but and, and were he to finish last in the Breeders' Cup Classic, who's going to say? Roaring Lion, as you say, a, a horse who was on the go from April to November mm. and then blossomed in the second half of the season to win, how many is it now, four group ones? Yeah. Oh, didn't win the Breeders' Cup Classic, <laughs> did he? <laughs> Who's going to say that? Well, no, Absolutely it's, nobody. <laughs> it'll be, at yeah, the end of the day... You want to do what's be, right for the horse. You want to do what's right for the horse. And it, it entirely depends on how he comes out of this race. Yeah. If, he is, if he is barging the door down and... Um, Spending most of his time on his hind legs, like he did for most of the season, uh, you know he's so resilient, so tough. Then I would, I would imagine he'll go. But I mean, he, he looked. I, I don't think I've ever been more blown away by a horse's physique and presence as I was with him at Leopardstown. I thought yesterday, to my own eye, in the paddock, he wasn't quite as ebullient as he was in Leopardstown. And whether that's at the end of the season or just because he's relaxing more now, I couldn't tell you. So we'll see. No doubt Mr Gosden will make a call and he'll make it in the next four or five days and then we can all move on one do, way or the other. Does he ever ask you to call him John? I, I, I notice you're, you're, very, you're very respectful. You always call him Mr Gosden. I mean, Rafe Beckett's just Rafe. <laughs> Rafe's a contemporary. <laughs> um, no, jo John, 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 Sir John, he'll be called shortly if he keeps this up. Um, no, not at all. I think uh, I, you've got to be deferential to somebody who's champion trainer. When Rafe's champion trainer, I'll call him Mr. Mr. Beckett. Mr. Beckett. Well, John, or Mr. Gosden, also had cracks but yesterday, of course, a horse with a very different profile to Roaring Lion, but another fine example of uh, getting a horse who's had issues back to uh, applying himself to the effect that he demolished the champion stakes field for the second consecutive year. This was such an important day for Cracksman, Jane, wasn't it? Such an important day, reputationally. We're so short-sighted and our memory is very short because this time last year he was the highest-rated three-year-old in training. Everybody was talking about him, whether he retire stud, what were future plans. And he only got beaten once this year on bell metal firm ground. So I thought it was very unfair for us to be forgetting about him, essentially. I thought he won in, in Epsom despite a lot of factors and people were saying, oh, the blinkers were applied because maybe he's a bit ungenuine. Absolutely not. He came down the hill in Epsom, a horse that wasn't handling the track, and still caught Salwyn. It was a brilliant display yesterday. There's good horses behind him. He raced behind the bridle, and actually when I was riding, I loved a horse behind the bridle because those were the horses when the last two furlongs and you asked for something, they had it. Mm. And I loved that about him. And the way he stretched clear, Capri, Crystal Ocean, they're top horses. So that was a mind-blowing performance. And that, for me, capped the day. That really, like, Roaring Lion won despite, and he won a short margin. That was a star performance, a champion performance. And Frankie on board. You know, the, the whole thing was Hollywood, um, what he does. And I hope he gets a chance at stud, because people will look at him and say, oh, he's a bit slow. No, he's a champion over 10 furlongs. That's not slow. Go away with your mile-and-a-half horse thing. If you want to win a derby, you breed to these horses. Um, I think he's a champion and impeccably trained. Don't just turn up because you're making up the numbers. You have a champion, treat him like that. And it was a brilliant way to sign off. So with your broodmare next year, David, um, that you've bought for, for big bucks, are you going to go to Cracksman or Roaring Lion? Well, personally, I, I would send her to Roaring Lion. But that's like Cracksman will get his chance at start, won't he? Yeah. He's a son of Frankel. He's a four-time Group 1 winner who's won the champion stakes by an aggregate of 13 lengths. He will get his chance at start. Like, and and we, we obsess... I don't, I'm, I'm not... I wouldn't pretend to be a, a breeding expert. I've never written about breeding. Um, 
but haven't done an awful lot either. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that we obsess about what a horse does on the track when it comes to a, a stallion. Galileo is the preeminent stallion in in the mm. Western world, even surpassing Sadler's Wells. He was an exceptional race co- racehorse, but he wasn't a racehorse that. If we if we just talk about what he did on the track, we would not talk of him as one of the absolute greats on the track. He was a very good Derby winner. He was beaten by Fantastic Light in Ireland. Uh, obviously, he won the King George as well. But yeah, he, you d- you but, but he is an exceptional stallion. Same with Dubawi. Dubawi is an exceptional stallion. He was not an exceptional racehorse. A racehorse. We don't talk about. We, we will not go through volumes of of racing results in two hundred years time. And say, oh, look at Dubawi. We just won't, and we won't actually with Galileo. But what they've done at, at, at uh, Stud subsequently usurps that, doesn't it? It so just does. How will you remember Cracksman as a racehorse? Um, I think Jane is right in what she says. The, the press, we, we live in a, a, a world of immediacy these days, don't we? And sadly, in sport generally, we obsess about sort of unbeaten records, and so when a horse is beaten at Royal Ascot, we probably write those... Well, horses off too early in the same way when a, a boxer loses a fight he's no longer unbeaten um, so I, I, as I re- well, will remember him I think he was an exceptional horse I don't really buy the Epsom thing I think he was third in a derby when he sat mm-hmm. closer to the fire than the, the, the two horses who finished in front of him um, he was he was probably ground dependent and it was his bad luck that we had the driest summer since 1976, which didn't help him in terms of yeah. running in those summer highlights. I, David talks about the press almost as if we're the bad guys talking about John Gosson keeping his horses apart. I do think he has a, a great knack of doing that. I think he's, he's, he's adept at managing his owners. I'm not, and I don't even think that's a bad thing. There's also probably a part of it, David, that you know, irrespective of what the ground was yesterday, John Gosden probably thought that in those two races, Roaring Lion was unlikely to be cracksman in the in the champion stakes if a, a, an on-song cracksman who had absolutely everything bang on and similarly he might have thought cracksman was unlikely to be enabled given her perfect circumstances in the arc de triomphe on ground that might have been a bit lively for cracksman so there's there, there are nuances involved in all these decisions aren't there there, there are lots and i you know john gosden had had uh, had serious concerns about running royal line on soft well, no, that's not true. He had, if there was heavy in the description, he wasn't going to run. He was never going to run round Swinley Bottom with heavy in the, because the horse moves too well. So this was all about the horse, mm. not the competition. Um, if if we'd run on the centre track, if we'd run on good to firm, they would have they would have run against each other, no question about it. And um, you know, the, the, I don't think there's been a horse that's done what, what Roaring Lion's done through the autumn with these big autumn Group Ones. Mm. Uh, and won them all, and we would have loved nothing more than to have won the champion stakes. But you know, we the conditions were against us, um, and so we went for the mile option, which was a, which was a, a really brave shape because you know he had several factors against him: ground and p- potentially trip. But we saw the perfect outcome. Now, Jane, seeing as you're someone who admires the stayer. You can give us your pin of praise to Stradivarius, who made it a perfect five for five yesterday in the Kipco long distance race. It's only a group two. I'm sure it will get an upgrade at some point, but it is only a group two. And they didn't really have an awful lot to gain, but they ran him and he won. And he won really well again. Absolutely. Here's another horse who doesn't get the credit he deserves. I think in in the last 10 years we've been spoiled. We've had a Yates, we've had a fame and glory, and we expect champions every time. This horse has danced every dance this year and has done it in different circumstances each time. They really pressed him to get the million bonus, something that they probably they would have never gone to the Longsdale Cup, only for the bonus. Um, it was a brilliant ride yesterday. Obviously, we know all about it. Here's the, the view from behind Oshin Murphy, I believe. Yeah, the camera. A massive performance from Frankie because that takes bottle. It's so, much, it's so easy to say it, but if he had got locked in, who knows what might have happened. Were you surprised Ryan let him up his inside? I was. I don't think Ryan will want to see that again. I know if, if anybody did it and you ring your father or you'd ring your trainer, they'd tell you all about it. So look, it won't happen again. <laughs> it, Frankie certainly didn't let the sheen up his inside. No. No, and look, 
at, at the end of the day, the best horse won, and that's what we probably should concentrate on. He's a star horse. He's a small horse. He's not a robust horse, but he's got massive heart. Just wonder if we can, in a minute, just having a look at the closing stage of the race. I love this reverse angle here you're seeing on the floor. Just in a moment, just take a look at that jockey's eye view again. Just for, for you to tell me whether you think Frankie was within his rights to shut the door on a Sheen Murphy in the closing stages. Everybody would do it. There was a little... Nah, everyone would do it, but was he was he within his rights to do it? He broke a rule, no. Uh, see, the head of um, Thomas Hobson, it's at the point of the hip of Stradivarius. Th thus, he's there in the gap. Uh, no, he shouldn't have done it, but everybody would. Um, did it make any difference to the result, Yatesy? Well, absolutely not. No, I mean, he got a three-day ban for it, didn't he? But... Uh, if that had been America, would that, what would have happened then? Well, they'd have chucked him out, same as in France. But, I mean, we, we talked before we came on air about uh, a, a uniform international rule book and a, whose, whose interference rules do we take? Certainly not France or America's, because they, they penalise the best horses. Um, what these three winners do, illustrate, I mean, a, a double-page advert in the Racing Post couldn't... Uh, illustrate John Gosden's skills any better as a trainer, could they? You've got one horse who was immature, who bloomed in the second half of the season under under his guidance. Right. You've got another horse who seemed to become becoming a little bit lazy. The semi blinker went on, and he gave a command performance to sign off his career. And then Stradivarius, a horse that targeted four races to win a million quid, then had a uh, a break. Of almost of two months, then comes back and wins on Champions Day. I mean, it's just it, it's 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 a master of his craft, isn't it? It's 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 incredible. But for magical, but for magical, yeah. it would have been a perfect day for John Gosden because he would have had the one-two in the fillies and mares as well. Because Coronet and Lati Dar finished second and third. But magical was was good yesterday, David. I mean, she she travelled and quickened like a pretty smart filly. This David, yes, I mean she did. It was, it was. I never thought I'd say it. But it was good to see Aidan O'Brien get a winner on the card. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a very impressive performance. Um, I think possibly um, John Gosling's ability to finish third well, it didn't, probably didn't stay. Um, that seems to be a bit of a common theme with the Dubai. Was a mile and a half just possibly takes them out of their comfort zone. Um, and then she didn't stay. Well, looking at that, she didn't, did she? Well, I, I stayed in, in the ledger. I thought she looked yeah, all over us there. I don't know. I, but just on that performance, it, it, certainly it seems to be a, a common theme with the Dubawis that they're uh, sort of man and quarter horses. Now, you have a vested interest here, but it's rather a nice vested interest because you, on behalf of Sheikh Farhad, purchased the book one sales topper, who is a brother to Lati Dar. Uh, 3.675 million. She's finished third in a group one yesterday. Her brother, Tudan Hot, won the Dewhurst in brilliant fashion last week. So you've already had a couple of pedigree upgrades that were widely anticipated. Uh, where is the horse now? What's he going to do? Can you confirm that he will be heading to, to John Gosden at Clarehaven now? Uh, well, he's at Long Holes at the moment outside Newmarket, which is a uh, breaking and pre-training centre, which is an also sort of hospital and rehab place um, run by Lou. Cornwall and he's living like a king as he has done most of his life mm. and he's uh, he'll, he's just been long reigned as we speak, he will be backed imminently and uh, um, I think it's no great secret that he'll be going to Mr Gosden at some point in the not too distant future um, you know it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to be involved with a horse that's come off such a good farm by, with such an incredible pedigree and um, it's very exciting for us. I mean, I can't believe... I mean, Rafe Beckett's absolutely livid. Your phone's lighting up like a Christmas tree now. You'd promised him the horse last week, and now you're saying he's off to John Gosling. I can't believe you could do this to your best friend. I'm sure we'll find him a replacement. <laughs> sure we will. I think that was a hundreds on, that this horse would be, would, would be, would be heading to John Gosling. How, how would you rate him as a model compared to the other two that you've seen from the same family, or three that you've seen from the same well, family? Well, he's, 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 he's slightly different. He's slightly scopier than his brother. Uh -huh. um, the brother's an absolute machine, um, but it's quite, uh, quite a bonny horse. Um, and, uh, and this fellow's just got a little bit more stretched in. But it's, you know, anything can happen. It's, 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 a, it's, it's playing poker with a very big, uh, very big hand. I mean, it's a, or very big stake, sorry. Um, 
we've done it before and it's come unstuck. Um, but rather hoping that third time lucky, he uh, he's he's just everything that you could look for in a young thoroughbred. Because Roaring Lion, I suppose, is bit for you has been your biggest success as far as he wasn't all that ex- most expensive for us, but he wasn't expensive by international bloodstock standards. Hundred sixty thousand yeah. dollars, and I suppose hydrogen was the yeah. was the other flip side of that coin. You cost three, two and a half, two and a half. Um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, it was a, it was a, certainly a sign of intent going and, and buying him, but I mean th- that's exactly the risk you take. I mean there, there was a gorgeous horse, half brother to a Derby winner, by supposedly a better stallion, um, beautiful model. Um, all the best judges wanted him. John Magna himself was underbidder, and uh, and told me at the Champions Eve dinner a couple of days later that it was the, the one regret he had of the sales season is not taking the horse home. We all felt very bullish, and then the horse goes and kicks the wall in his stable and um, fractures a bone in his hock and never really lets himself down again. So, you know, however clever or stupid we look buying these expensive horses, uh, the only thing that really matters is that, um, is that they, they get a fair crack of the whip and they get to see the race course unencumbered. And, you know, I just pray that you know, he will obviously be in the best hands at the moment. He, he started his life in the best hands, he's in the best hands at the moment, and he'll go to the best possible hands. That he doesn't suffer any um, any problems on the route, and that he and he sh- shares the talent that the rest of the family have. You got a name for him yet? No. Any ideas been well tossed I, around? The the the, uh, the owners will all discuss it between themselves, and no doubt come up with something very suitable for a horse of that calibre. <laughs> okay, uh, that is the yearling. We look forward to him. We would be uh, not doing our duty if we didn't have a quick look at the sprint yesterday, the Group 1 race won by Sands of Mali for Richard Fahey and Paul Hannigan. I think Yatesy, human interest angle here, really. And I think there was a lot of warmth towards Paul Hannigan yesterday, seeing back in the, in the winner's enclosure at the highest level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, on, on most days, this would have led any race report. Paul Hannigan, his last domestic Group 1 had been three years ago in this very race aboard Muhara. Obviously he parted company with boss Sheikh Hamdan weeks after that, went back to ride for Richard Fahey as stable jockey. I mean, he, he rode for Richard Fahey during uh, his time when he was with Sheikh Hamdan, but this was a, a hugely warmly received victory. At, Afterwards, the jockey said, you know, he could hardly put into words what it meant to him to come back and win this race and to do it for for his boss and, did, and great did, friend. Did he have a little shushy there? Did he have a little silence the doubters? Oh, I do hope not. I, I, think I, he, I don't like that shush what? celebration. I prefer Christoph Sumion's at Ascot some years ago <laughs> where he waved his arm around and pointed his at his backside. Yeah. yeah. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. As promised, Nick Rush, Chief Executive of the British Horse Racing Authority, joins us on the line now. Morning, Nick. Morning, Nick. How are you? Very well, thank you. And thank you very much for joining us uh, from, your, from your home in Yorkshire this morning. Um, I, it's been a, a very busy week for you. We've widely praised the work that you've been doing in, in Parliament as regards equine welfare, and we'll come on to that in a minute. But you've heard what David said about the, the Andrea at Zaney mix-up, cock-up, call it what you will, sloppy, uh, Dave Yates described it as. How frustrating is it for you that something quite small but with fairly significant consequences can essentially undermine you reputationally and and undermine a lot of this very strong work that you've been doing during the course of the week? Um, Very much so, obviously. I am... I'd just like to, I mean, I'd like to put in general just a few things into into context. Um, we have had a few errors this year that they've happened forever, frankly, in British racing. But I, but I want to I want to put it in perspective. We are we're 10 years old as an organisation. British racing's 300 years old. The goalposts on the demands and expectations from government, the public, uh, on our sport and our participants on things such as you know, anti-doping, safeguarding, diversity, being transparent, people mm-hmm. and their welfare, sports governance, disciplinary processes, and of course, equine welfare that we're going to talk about. The yeah. goalposts have moved dramatically, and our resources are uh, less than they were 10 years ago, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm not looking for sympathy, but I do want to put it into perspective. Our system was built without the double checks in it that we've heard about this morning. 
um, I saw Andrea's um, understandable, frustrated comment saying, you know, and we hear it a lot, and it comes with the territory a bit, that, um, you know, when we do something wrong, they punish us. When they do something wrong, they say sorry and nothing happens. Well, I think my predecessors didn't say sorry at all, and I was appalled. <laughs> and so I started to, to say sorry when we did things that inevitably will go wrong from time to time. But the main thing is that we don't sit and do nothing. Um, mm -hmm. We do dismiss people where they fail to consistently deliver. But unfortunately, a number of these errors are built on the fact that uh, we have no double-checking in place. I'll give you an example. Um, the, I think David just mentioned just now about uh, wrong horse running in a race. Well, our rule book says it's the responsibility of a trainer to ensure that the right horse runs in a race. Obviously, that's not good enough for the modern world. At the end of the day, you're expecting the governing body to check that. But our system and our costs and our resources over you know, tens of years was built on the basis that a single check would take place. We're now putting in an additional check at additional costs. Um, the new stewarding model has focused a lot on honorary stewards, but the key recommendation from my point of view from it is to introduce a chief steward at every race meeting who will double check any decision. So if a horse is to be withdrawn at the start, that check will need to be overseen by someone else before it happens. Um, we cannot be as good as our weakest individual in an individual pocket of teams. And the goalposts have moved, what is expected of us is, has moved, and, and I'm busy working with my team to continue to change that, but it will require resources. So this specific issue with Andrea Razzani, yeah. this happened because there wasn't a double check system in place, is that right? And you're now well, going two, to put there's that... Two, there's two things. Firstly, the, the, if, this had been a, if this had been a ban from a race day here, um, the, the, the restriction on Andrea being booked automatically goes into our system, um, such that uh, when Tony Hind calls to ask to move the days, um, the, the, the restriction is already in the system. We can see the dates um, available, and there is an option under that to move the day in line with our rule, which says that each time for a span of four days or less, you can move one of the dates or one or more of the dates when uh, they occur on a day when Group 1 racing is taking place. The French uh, or, or other foreign bands have to be manually entered into the system. They're not flagged in the same way, uh, and there's no flags in the system to suggest what the actual rule is. Unfortunately, a less experienced member of the team took the call from Tony Hind, um, and in trying to do the right thing, um, interpreted it as the British rules and made a, made a mistake. It's not acceptable. Um, as Dave said earlier, it, it is sloppy, and we have to cut these things out. Um, but our systems, which have been built you know, at Weatherby's over 30 years, some of which are still based on DOS, for those of you who remember that, um, <laughs> require investment. Is that with a single S or a double? <laughs> Just before I started, there was a horse called Young Master, you may remember, won at Wincanton. Yes. On a Saturday. And wasn't and qualified to run in the and race and got disqualified. Yeah. So you might Badger say, well, how did it run in the race? Be well, because one of the conditions um, in that particular race had not been built into, into our systems because we have a very um, complex and varied um, set of conditions and so on that has not been fully built into our systems. What I'm trying to achieve with the stewarding changes and with, with some work we're now doing with Weatherby's, led by Richard Wayman, our chief operating officer, is to overhaul our systems, close these gaps, and remove the uh, ability for human errors. Okay, Nick, let's move on and talk about the equine welfare debate that was triggered in Parliament this week by a significant amount of signatures on a petition. Just remind us exactly how many signatures were needed on that petition in order for this debate about whether you should be responsible for governance of welfare. Yes, 100,000 will trigger a discussion in Parliament at the Petitions Committee as to whether there should be a debate. Um, anyone can start a petition, and there are two hurdles that have to be reached. One is uh, a minimum number of 10,000 uh, e-signatures by a particular date. I can't remember, I think it's within a couple of months of launching a petition. And then after that, there's a further period of a few months where you have to reach 100,000 if you're to trigger a debate. Animal Aid launched this uh, petition, and they achieved 106,000 signatures by the deadline. The petitions um, committee decided that it was worthy of a debate, and I think that in itself shows you where Parliament is at at the moment. The debate was attended by David Rutley, who is the newly appointed Animal Welfare Minister, and also by Luke Pollard, um, who's the Labour Shadow Minister um, on DEFRA matters. Um, 
Uh, he also made the point that they would, uh, if Labour was in power, they would appoint a, an animal welfare commissioner. So yeah. you can see that this subject is well up the order at the moment in Parliament, and it's a reflection of society, frankly. Um, I think, I think, you know, as you would expect, the, our lobby was strong in Parliament, and we received very good support in the debate from a number of politicians, but particularly from those on the uh, all-party racing group, Conor McGinn, Philip Davis and Lawrence Robertson. And ultimately the petition failed. Um, the government backed the BHA as an independent regulator on welfare. But, but what I wanted to say, and it's been interesting listening to your program this morning, this, I, this arguably isn't really about the BHA in this case, but really about our sport as a whole. Um, although the minister in, in, endorsed our role and the good work that's being done by racing generally in recent years, he put the BHA and the sport on notice if you like, about welfare. And in particular, he pointed out the forthcoming Cheltenham review, which is going mm. to be an, announced by us in the next two weeks about the fatalities at Cheltenham, um, as being a major test for the sport. Um, a key theme of the debate from all of the party spokesmen was that racing and the BHA probably needed to do more and faster to improve welfare. In fact, Luke Pollard for Labour actually made it all about fatalities and talked about putting in a target to reduce fatalities by half yeah, in he, five years. I'm just reading what he said here. He said, although we've seen improvements in the number of deaths, where next, Pollard said, when we will get to 0.1% of runners, when will the target be zero? Yeah, and he also wanted a, a review of the use of the whip as well. Um, yeah. So we can see, I, I mean, there's been a limited media reporting of this up until now, Nick. Um, there were a couple of reports in The Guardian and The Racing Post um, and there have been follow-up pieces which are, which are moving on on the story, but neither initial piece, in my view, appreciated the significance of the, of the comments made and probably told these as BHA-focused stories. And back to where we were, you know, <laughs> the BHA competent yeah. and so on. Um, but probably without understanding the wider significance for racing. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting for one minute, um, if I, I can't see David uh, Yates at the moment, but who may be looking worried about this. I'm not suggesting for one minute that racing somehow says, oh, okay, let's just change everything in the face of some um, criticism at government level. But I think we have to take note that this is a wake-up call because mainstream politicians are questioning our sports commitment to reduce fatalities. Um, and, and obviously we won't address that without a concerted effort being made to continue to improve the numbers. Um, the main parties do still support racing regulating itself for now, but they've made clear that that support will only be maintained if we all achieve those better outcomes. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. And my next guest has shown himself to be both of those things during the course of what's been a wonderful season for him and his super filly, Lawrence, who's notched up five Group 1 wins. It didn't quite happen for her yesterday at Ascot, but she has done him proud and he has been a great source of entertainment to all of us in the sport. He is the owner, John Dance. John, good morning and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. And what, a, what a year it's been. I, you're a relative newcomer to the ownership game. <coughs> yeah. and I know you've always been a massive racing fan, but yeah. do you ever look at Lawrence and think, I'm never going to have another one this good. Um, I'm very conscious of that fact already, yes. Um, you know, I think for any owner, whether they're, you know, Qatar, David Redvers and, and Sheikh Fahad and their team, Godolphin, Coolmore, you know, for, for any big owner to have a horse that can win five Group 1s in a year is, is pretty exceptional, I guess, even for them. So for, you know, we consider ourselves to be, you know, real small owners. Um, you know, the dream come true phrase um, doesn't do it justice anymore. It's just, it's just quite surreal. It's talk, incredible. Talk in a minute about just exactly how small an owner you are or what <laughs> sort of size of ownership base you might look to have. But your celebrations have been so infectious because you've lived and loved every minute of this. Yeah. Just try in the cold light of day to give us some indication as to what you're feeling when she when she wins a race. Um, it's hard to put it into words. Um, you know, you try not to get nervous in advance, but you know, you, you're so hopeful. And you know, these are these races we were winning, you know, in the last 12 months or so. They're 
you know, historically, in a historical context, they're, they're huge. You know, the greats of the game have been winning these races. And like I say, you know, we consider ourselves to be small owners. And for, for our horse, you know, little John and Jess from Newcastle to have a horse doing this, I don't know, as you, the, the adrenaline comes through you, you explode. And, um, you know, some people probably think I'm, a, I'm an extrovert, but, uh, you know, I'm quite shy normally. I obviously have that streak in me. And sometimes I get so shy and I don't know what to do. But the extrovert, you know, streak just comes through. And I'd never done the robot in my life before that day at Doncaster. <laughs> You've absolutely no idea why it was the robot that, that came out. Um, and most people will probably confirm I've never done it by the, the poorness of its execution. But, um, yeah, and it's, it's become a bit of a thing. And, I, I, you know, I, I try and restrain myself, but I can't help it now anyway. So... Um, yeah, no, it's been, it, it's great, and I suppose that's, that's part of the appeal, isn't it? We've slowed it down for you in all its glory here, John. Just look at that. <sighs> yeah, that was, that's probably the worst um, performance of the robot as well, but it was quite funny. It, it kind of, that, that whole movement took on a life of its own. Um, you know, we won a race at Newcastle not long after um, that day at the Phillies Mile, and the staff there asked if I'd do it on the podium so they could put it on Twitter. We won another race there. Um, a few weeks later and we were on holiday at the time and so the race course got their own staff doing the robot uh, you know in our in our honor and stuff and so it just it kind of took on its own life at that point when was the first time a horse ran in your colors um just over four years ago it's only our fifth year so it's just over four years ago uh probably been april may 2014 i think so that's called our cossie so how has it gone from that to you dancing the robot in the winners' in <laughs> at uh, Newmarket after winning after winning a Group One. What's been the journey, and why has the journey taken taken such a sort of dramatic spurt forward? Um, well, we, we were quite lucky in that first year. Um, I mean, it, it spiralled out of control within weeks, literally within weeks. Um, you know, we went to a yard. The, the idea was we'd, we'd have a small share in a horse, um, and we came back with seventy-five percent that day. Uh, we learnt about the breeze ups, which were in sort of two or three weeks' time, and, and we came back from there with with a further five, um, and that was just sort of you know impulsive, silly purchasing at the time. But it kind of it opened our eyes to what we might be able to do, and we you know we were very lucky in that first crop of of six. Mm. Two were reasonably good, or at least you know two won on debut, and we got reasonably good offers for them. Um, and I did the wrong thing and turned them both down. Um, you know, they're never worth as much as they were that day. But it did give me the idea that there was a way that perhaps we could be involved in, yeah. in ownership, um, make it, you know, not so financially destructive and, and therefore by numbers that we might find a, a Lawrence or, you know, something. I, I, I didn't think we'd ever find something as good as that, but if we could find a listed horse or, you know, something of that nature, then that would be a dream come true. It's, it's interesting you say that about, about managing the finances of it because a lot of people have come into the game whose, whose business is money, essentially, which, which, which yours is. You're a, yeah. you're a financial guy, you run a hugely successful fund, Vertim. Um, they, they, they apply or attempt to apply some sound business principles to their ownership interests. Would you say you're trying to do the same thing? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I often relate the way we operate in the racing world to the way we do or the way we manage portfolios, you know, diversification. You know, when we're looking after a portfolio for a client, we have 30, 40 investments, 30, 40 stocks. And no matter how much faith you've got in all of them, you know that some are going to come a cropper. Mm -hmm. So you need some good ones to offset, you know, those that, that, that let you down a little bit. And, it's, and it's, that's what we're trying to do in, in the racing world is, is, you know, we know that the majority of our horses aren't going to be particularly good. They aren't going to pay their way. Um, and if we can find a few that, you know, Lawrence has... has paid for most of them in prize money um, and we've had a few others that we've been able to sell uh, for you know for good multiples that have offset the damage of you know training fees as well as actually buying them in the first place so um, people think people in your industry are natural risk takers would you rather more describe yourself as a natural risk manager uh, that yes exactly yeah it is it is risk management not risk taking definitely um, uh, I mean, you know, people people talk about the supplementing yesterday as being what a, you know, what what a brave call it was, but it was a risk running it. But I don't think it was a risk 
paying to get in because I'd, I'd sort of treated it as you know she paid for that entry beforehand. Um, Here she is yesterday. She was swinging along in customary fashion. Um, didn't really see a race out. Is it, was it simply a case of one race too many, do you think? Yes, uh, I think so. Um, you, that, that's, that's the conclusion we've come to. Uh, a few people questioned before the race and, and therefore assumed after the race that the ground was too soft for her. Um, but that's definitely not the case. Um, PJ said that she was loving the ground and for five furlongs he could tell she was enjoying herself. She, she was actually giving her a really good feel. Um, but as soon as he asked her to lengthen, um, you know, she was empty and she felt very tired instantly. Yeah. Um, ironically, it's, it's the first race where something's gone a good gallop, but in front of us, and we've had something to follow, which we've been waiting for, you know, virtually all season. Um, Carl's been pretty confident that, um, you know, she's better with a lead. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time something went quick enough to, to carry her and let her relax, but still use that that stride she's you know something of a time trialer if you like you know she's got a huge cruising speed yeah but then can just lengthen and lengthen and lengthen and keep going off it you know a bit like team sky climbing a mountain in, in the grand tours at cycling you know she just wears wears her opponents down by going quick and yeah. then quicker and quicker but th there were a few signs at newmarket two weeks ago um that she might have been on the brink of of having enough and going over the top for the year um you know, she was very keen, um, a bit gassy, um, and they can be a, a sign that, that she's, you know, fresh and well. Uh, um, she looked great in her coat yesterday, so there was nothing obvious to suggest she'd had enough. But um, yeah, it was it was definitely a case of going to the well once too often. I'm yeah, afraid she, she showed blinding pace in the middle of the Newmarket race, and then just just started to ebb away. Close yeah, I home. mean, if you, you look at the ground there. Um, that looks in many ways softer, certainly looser than, than mm. um, Ascot yesterday. It was, officially it was good that day, but uh, it was certainly very testing in places. And it was the middle part of the race where, where I think she won it. So she's definitely done for the season. She won't go to America. No, no. Um, and this, it, w it was just those niggle possibilities that she might be done for the year that I think was one of the main reasons we decided to go for Ascot rather than America because mm -hmm. that's, that's a hell of a long way to go to, to find out she'd already had too much. So, no, she'll not be going to America now. She'll, she'll have a very well-deserved break and hopefully come back fitter, stronger and better next year. Now, this is a well-bred filly. She's extremely good-looking. <laughs> She's a multiple Group 1 winner. Yeah. She is worth an absolute fortune. A sale of her could essentially guarantee... Um, your future in the game for the next <clears throat> three or four years. Yes. Why wouldn't you sell her? Um, I think it's because she's so special and, and has been so special to us. She's taken us to places that we couldn't have dreamed of ever going. Um, emotionally, it'd be very, very hard to let her go. And, you know, part of our way of, of diluting the, the financial damage is by breeding. Um, so we do breed. We'd ne probably never get a chance to breed from a horse like her. But in the future, having you know horses where you know she's at the bottom of the page as as a sort of blue hen of, of you know uh, an operation, it, it would be great to see that. So um, you're, you're intending to breed from her yourself? Well, one of the, the, the main reason for keeping her in training next year is so that we don't have to make that decision yet. Um, you know, we, we don't have anything quite as special as her. Um, so it would make for a very lopsided breeding operation, um, and and we have flip flop, uh, flip flop between, you know, we'll keep her to breed or sell her, and, and we invest that into you know other other horses. But isn't it, it, isn't it the truth that every horse has his or her price at some point? I mean, if you were made a ridiculous offer, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, someone wandered into the studio now and said, "We'll give you ten million cash in her first filly." get the best of both worlds, you know, because at least we'd have something to, but, you know, the, the kind of money that would um, make it a yes now, I don't think anyone would offer. And she, yeah I, yeah, yeah, I agree with you, she probably is worth a fortune because, you know, she's a perfect outcross for at least two of the mm. the world's leading stallion organisations. Yeah. Um, but then that also means, from our perspective, she's a great, uh, you know, perfect outcross for stallions we can use, so... Yeah, it's very hard. Um, let's let's just enjoy racing again for another year and try and panic about that decision next year. Well, it's great news that she's staying in training uh, for another year. 
Um, how much of your time do you get to devote on, on racing now? You know, you've built up an enormously successful business. You're one of the northeast most successful businessmen. What, um, what portion of your time can you devote to um, Probably a lot less this year. Than, than in previous years, which is a you know byproduct of you know having a baby a few weeks ago, and and also it's been even busier still at work. Um, when we first got into it, it was a, it was a great mental distraction from work. Um, you know, I'm not great at going to bed and not thinking about investments or nice. formulas or ways we can improve the way you know we, we operate in the investment world and and having something to dream about and those first horses to start off with was you know. Which dreaming about which claiming we might go and win, as opposed to you know how Lawrence might win in, win in a Group One. But have, having that something to dream about just allowed me to drift off to sleep rather than crunching numbers all night. Um, you are you are fundamentally am, a, a mathematician, aren't you? You're a, you're a yeah, mathematical it's about the brain. only skill I've got to be honest um, is is in a mathematical sense. Um, so yeah, I, I've developed algorithms for for analyzing you know horses horses pedigrees as well but um but yeah but that's, have that's you have you found those as successful as some of the ones you've applied to your day-to-day -day business um they they work quite well in in valuing horses mm -hmm. um this this year's crop of two-year-olds is probably the first proper crop where where i use that as part of the process and we found cosmic law via, via that which is great i mean it's not just the algorithm it's it's like a again. This is very much like we operate in the investment world. It's kind of a, a you know quantitative framework mm -hmm. within which you have subjective influences. So yeah. you know the, the advice we've got from Carl and other trainers, Dan Crichton and Ed Sackville um, as bloodstock advisors, it all goes into this sort of quantitative pot. Because um, we very we've much how we work as well. But um, well, we've been touching on this quite a bit on on the program. The idea of whether whether more complexity makes your interest in the sport more intense. Insofar as the more the more you get into it, the more you get involved with it, the more complex concepts you get you can get your head round, yeah. then actually it becomes much more rewarding. So you're unlikely to be the guy that's here today and gone tomorrow like some wealthy owners we've seen. No, no, exactly, yeah. Um we were sort of talking off screen um whilst you were going on about the whip for ten hours. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> we were talking about baseball in the US. I know American football was brought up. Yeah. We were talking about baseball, which has just got reams of statistical analysis and data and formulas and ratios that, that you know, the, the viewing public in America are exposed to and, you know, all eventually make sense to them. It's not put people off baseball in America. It's a hugely participated in sport and mega, you know, viewed sport. So, you know, I, 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 it's obviously slightly different in horse racing, but I think, you know, the more information that, that is available, the better, you know, more timing data and mm -hmm. sectional analysis, you know, I think that would make it more interesting rather than, you know, dumbing it down and making handicaps, you know, easier to understand and uh, yeah, I think, you know, make it more complex. We, we live in a, a data-intensive uh, world now. Mm. You know, I think the new generation are used to that, and, and so I don't think it's a bad thing at all, no. You've, um, got, a, you've got a young family as, as well, haven't yeah. you? How many? Uh, I've got three, three, three children, uh, two daughters and, and, and one son, Harvey. And the eldest is? Uh, the eldest is 22. The eldest is 23. 20, 23, and interested in the sport? Uh, yeah, she loves it. I'd say she's probably Lauren's biggest fan. Um, uh, sh I, she made it to the Guineas, um, which is, you know, sadly the one of the few races we didn't win uh, over the last twelve months. But every other race, you know, she's she's on the phone within milliseconds, tears of emotion. Um, she's she's a huge fan. We we took her down to the yard last weekend, especially to to go and give Lawrence a kiss and a cuddle ahead of uh, ahead of this weekend. But yeah. Um, Lauren's, uh, Lauren herself, who was one of the main inspirations for buying Lawrence, who was already named. Um, uh, she's more into Harvey than than the horses at the moment, but um, you know she's she's pretty on board with what we do. So you think that there is potential for the sport to to maintain a fan base amongst the the next generation, amongst millennials or the YouTube generation or whatever people want to want to call. Yeah, this generation of young people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and then, like I say, I think you know, just making it fit in a modern environment, um, which is you know, data, statistic heavy, 
um, it's you know it's it's social media it's you know it's that kind of thing yeah definitely I think you know just making it sit alongside other sports in, the, in a similar way would would be a way of doing it certainly. So what what in the immediate future is is the dance bloodstock empire going to look like? Are you are you reinv- you've, you reinvested at this year's yearling sales? Uh, yes, we have, and you know we've been lucky with with how well Lawrence has done, which means that we've been able to spend a little bit more on uh, horses with a, with a good pedigree. Um, so hopefully, if they win, you know, at, at, at some level. Um, then there'll be, you know, slightly better uh, horses to have in the paddocks for us. Um, if we have a quiet year next year on track and we and we don't do quite so well with prize money and uh, profits from from horses, then you know we go back to, you know, yeah. previous year's plans and, and spend less on, um, you know, combination of, of colts and fillies and, and hope they can make their own page. But you know, one year one year's investment is is entirely dependent on the previous year's success, I guess, in, in many respects. So, well, if, um, if every year's as good as this one, you'll be... Yeah, well, well yeah, we'd be very happy, certainly, yeah. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Well, that was this week's Luck on Sunday. I hope you've enjoyed it. I enjoyed it in the company of John Dance, of David Redvers, of Jane Mangan, and of David Yates from the Daily Mirror. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and then you can receive it weekly on iTunes. It'll be available every Sunday from mid-afternoon. Next week, my guests on Luck on Sunday include the owner and breeder, Philippa Cooper from Normandy Stud, the racing correspondent for the BBC, Cornelius Lysett, and regular on the show but making his first appearance of this season, the ever-engaging and entertaining Neil Channing. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai.